The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. Did Monaco unearth new problems for Mercedes? Are Pirelli's low-profile 2022 tyres working as planned? And how do you solve a problem like porpoising? We'll answer all those questions and more on your brand new tech podcast. I'm Ed Straw and welcome to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Joining me to talk all things tech is a man who needs little introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. It's former F1 technical director and designer, Gary Anderson. Hello, Gary. How's life? Life's good, yeah. Sun's shining, so I can't really complain too much. Um, talking about racing, it's, uh, it's been a great season, isn't it? All, all full of action, so... Um, Let's hope that continues to the to the end of the season and we get a good battle at the last race for the championship. Exactly. Action-packed on track and pretty action-packed technically as well, which is the good news, especially with the fact that you're going to be joining me each week to talk about F1 tech topics. So let's start off just with something that's caught your eye technically this week, perhaps related to the Monaco weekend. Well, for me, the big thing was, uh, was Mercedes, to be honest. Um, you know, they're still in trouble. We've got a very, very different track at the, at Monaco than, than the rest of the tracks. Um, obviously, because of the, the cambers on the road and the, the bumps and bounces really around there, the track itself dictates that you need to run the car higher um, just, just to get ground clearance, to be honest. Otherwise, you just skate off the road on the bottom of the car. So, in theory, that should, that should result in this porpoising being reduced because the car will be higher automatically. Now, everybody wants to keep the car as low as possible because never mind the, the downforce that the underfloor produces, but the, the center of gravity of the whole mass is lower. So in theory, the car should be faster the lower it is. But as I say, the track service at Monaco dictates that you need to, to have it a bit higher. So I, I thought that going to Monaco, Mercedes would be right in there, um, challenging for, for that you know pole position. Um, but it ended up, it wasn't. And to be honest, it was as far off as it, as it was anywhere else. And, and the car... I have to say, from the visual, visual point of view, it looked terrible, um, and it wasn't all, it wasn't porpoising that was really the main thing. It was just bouncing. Um, now that relates to tires as well, because the the suspension stiffness, uh, vertical stiffness of the suspension, and the the tire stiffness, they have to go sort of hand in hand. You can't let one side or the other do all the all the movement. You have to you know make the car work and make the tire work. So you want to give the tire a hard time because that helps heating it up. Whenever the tire is getting a good, a good pounding, that helps move the carcass, which generates heat, which generates tire temperature. But you've also not got any damping on the tire, so you need to have the suspension moving. Even the majority of the movement should be on the suspension because you've got the damper control on that, so you can actually slow it down, which is what you use the dampers for. You want to slow down that that transfer of, of movement. Um, you can't stop it because it's, uh, the load from the aerodynamics is actually giving you the, the car height. But as I say, whenever you stand on the brakes or you hit the throttle or you turn the car into the corner, the dampers just slow down that reaction to weight transfer. So that's that's really what you use the dampers for. Um, and it just looked like the, the, uh, the Mercedes either didn't have any rear suspension on it and letting the tyres do everything, uh, which meant that the, you know, the tyre just sets up like a pogo stick. Um, and the car was banging itself into the ground. Um, and as I say, I was surprised at that because the, the, the speeds you travel around um, Monaco 
other than coming out through the tunnel and on the pit straight. You know, the car's never ready at, at any low ride height. And as I say, even then, because the ride heights are higher, support wasn't, wasn't instigating this movement in the rear of the car. It was just lack of lack of rear suspension control over the bumps. And, you know, that can relate then whenever you go to a normal circuit, because the bumps are the same, doesn't matter what circuit you're at. It's just that a lot of them, like in Barcelona, you get the bumps down the pit straight. Um, and if you don't control those bumps, then the car will get close to the ground and it will start bouncing. And the porpoising, as we call it, where they are the underfloor stalls because it gets very close to the ground, um, will double that problem. So I think Mercedes will come away from Monaco having learned a lot um, about the fact that it's not just an aerodynamic problem, their underfloor. It's actually controlling the car that's their problem. Um, I think they'll have learned a lot from Monaco, a lot more than they have for their races earlier this year. In terms of this problem, obviously everybody's focused on the change to the ground effect flaws in terms of porpoising, etc. But to what extent do you think the suspension rule changes have contributed to this? Simplified suspensions, no inerters. Have they just got less tools to control the suspension and they're almost having to work in a more conventional area to get the car operating as they want? Yes, it is a more conventional area for sure. Um, the, the big problem is now that I uh, suppose you know, we talk about porpoising and for sure... Any aerodynamic surface that's producing lots of downforce getting near the ground will produce some form of aerodynamic stall at some point in time. And, and even as a designer, you know, you want that to happen because the drag gets reduced, but you don't want it to happen until the car's really low, ride, low ride height um, and you don't want it to be too dramatic. So if you have it, you've still got to control it. So suspension-wise, you know, you've got the normal torsion bars, um, a third spring element, which keeps the car off the ground, basically, uh, an anti-roll bar and dampers. And the, the whole mechanism works. You've got two side springs, um, and basically the car uses them first. That's the sort of softer part of the car, I suppose you might call it suspension-wise. And as the car compresses going into a long straight, the, the third spring element will come into play. And that's a much, much stiffer stiffness. And, that, and that's just about stopping the car hitting the ground. Um, it doesn't come into play in, in corners, um, and you set it so that it doesn't come into play in corners that are fairly important. But what happens is because the car in a corner rolls, the third spring doesn't compress in roll. It only compresses whenever both both wheels are tr- the car's tra- the tires getting near to the ground, or both wheels are both rising. If one wheel is rising and one of them is going to droop because of roll, then the third spring doesn't actuate. Um, and the anti-roll bar then re- resists the, the the rolling force of the car, the, the the cornering force of the car. So you have got, a, a, in theory, a softest side spring, a very stiff third spring that keeps the car from hitting the ground. And it, it's a lot of tools. You can still you can still play tunes on it um, as to what what does what and when it does it. So not having the inertas, not having you know all the complicated stuff of of remote hydraulic suspension stuff. Yeah, that's all gone, but. But there are teams out there that are um, getting on top of it. So I don't think we should look at it and say that having a, you know, all the complication of suspension that we had last year or the year before, it's, it's, it's not necessary to control these cars. You can control it with the tools that you've got. Sometimes these problems that highlight themselves, like porpoison, doesn't necessarily come from the aerodynamic stall. It comes from not being able to control the car's movement. Do you think we've seen almost the best and worst of Mercedes over these past couple of weeks? Barcelona, pretty good. Not too many slow corners, not too challenging a track for its limitations. And Monaco, really, really difficult for the ride. 
the best and the worst is very difficult to uh, to assess. Um, if I was looking at the races we've seen so far this year, I haven't seen it being any better than you know the the third team, um, and even then it's the third team, but it's just in front of the midfield bunch. Um, at least with George Russell. I mean, George is doing a fantastic job in the car. And I, I don't know what's wrong with Lewis, but, you know, we, we, we give him a big pat on the back for his efforts in Barcelona. But actually, to be honest, you know, it, I didn't see that in myself. Yes, he was going quick, but races are very difficult to, to assess because, you know, nobody's driving flat out in the races. They're, they're all looking after something, something or another. So races are one of those things where you can look exceptional just because you're, you're driving way past the level that you would do if you were actually placed in the middle of that front battle, um, because you don't you don't really care, you know. Um, so it's one of those sort of situations. I think I I don't think we've seen the the best of them for sure, um, because they should be mixing it up there with Ferrari and Red Bull at least. Well, I suspect there'll be plenty more talk about Mercedes and its problems as the season goes on. It's been a storyline that's dominated the the year so far, and it's going to continue to do so. Let's dive into our main topic of the show, tyres. They're always a huge talking point in Formula One. It's a bit of a mysterious science, isn't it, making them work? That can make the difference between winning and losing. And of course, this year's tyres, low profile, 18-inch wheel rims rather than the 13-inch rims that we were used to for so long. Before we get into our interview, Gary, have tyres always been this capricious and difficult, or has this just become a bigger deal in F1 in recent years? And has the change to the the new tyres this year added just a, a new challenge? Um, I don't think it's added a new challenge at all. I think they've always been tricky. I mean, we've through my time. I mean, I started from the one nineteen seventy three, and I remember you know tyre problems then, blistering front tyres in Austria. Um, and you know, there were Goodyear tyres, high speed circuit, high load quarters. You, know, you got blisters um, right through the you know the eighties, the nineties. You always were, were looking after the tyre because it's the four black bits that connect the car to the ground. And um, you know, we've gone through various things. At Brabham at the time, we we actually tried uh, at Monaco. We we tested a tennis stand at rear wheels with huge sidewall tyres, a bit like a dragster. Because the belief then was traction, traction was everything, and the the more compliance you could get between the the torque that was coming into the rim from the from the car from the engine and the gearbox to the to what the tire saw, the more compliance you could get between those two, like a dragster basically, the sidewalls all fold up really, I suppose you might call it, then the better the traction would be. But unfortunately, going around the corners, the tire just was moving like a big like a big balloon, um, like a whoopee cushion. So. You know, tires have always been something you had to look at because, as I say, the, the car's the car, the track's the track. The thing that connects the two together is that black bit of rubber. Yeah, and we get endless talk about it as a result because, of course, it's also a very, very easy thing to blame given it's a control supply, and we see plenty of teams and drivers going to that well. But what's your feeling on the success of the new tires this year, Gary? Have you been impressed with them, disappointed, somewhere in between? Um, I suppose I, the thing I'll be disappointed in is the fact that the pressures have still got to be run very high. Um, you know, the, 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 the fact the tyre was theoretically was designed to re, to be able to reduce the, ter- the pressures on the tyres. You know, whenever, let's say, we had Bridgestone tyres, your nominal sort of tyre pressure hot would be maybe 2021 on the front, 2021 PSI on the front, rear maybe 17 or 18 PSI. Um so the the fact that you know you want the car to be stable, 
So that means the front tire is a little bit higher pressure just to give you that turn in and you can load it up. Uh, the tire doesn't compress quite so much when you're braking, all that sort of stuff. And the rear the rear tire you want a little bit softer because of traction, because there's more compliance in it. You get a bigger contact patch. Um, so that, that was a sort of average nominal pressure. Um, but we're seeing two, three, four, five PSI higher than that really with the Pirelli tires, especially in the rear because the cars, the, the load that the cars are putting into the tires. Now, you know, I can understand that. The loads, loads are that high and you need it, but the 18-inch rim and the side, lower sidewall tire was all done, was all conceived basically to be able to reduce the pressures that they were running in the previous, the previous years because the higher the pressure, once you start to get a bit of wheel spin, which you do, then the, the, temp- the surface temperature of the tire goes up dramatically, and that's whenever they get this, you know, thermal degradation that the tire just has no grip. So by reducing the pressures, you should reduce that and give yourself a bigger working window, and that hasn't quite happened. As far as the 18-inch rim is concerned, that's the lower sidewall uh, rim. I think that's good for the car because you are putting a little bit more movement in the suspension. Going back to what we just spoke about earlier, you know, when you have that more movement in the suspension and less in the tire. You can control it with the damper, um, and that's something that I think you know. That's where Mercedes have sort of slipped up a bit. They haven't really sort of bought into the fact that these new tires are going to be that bit stiffer. Um, so I think the tire is good for the car theoretically, but I would like to see the pressures been able to adjust from previous seasons to allow that tire to still um, to to be beneficial for the grip level and the, the durability. Yeah, there's certainly plenty of teams that would like to see that happening as well, given the relatively speaking sky-high pressures that are being used in F1 these days. Well, I'm delighted to say that on this podcast, we're joined by Mario Isola. Mario has been with Pirelli for just over a quarter of a century, taking up his current position as head of F1 and car racing in 2016. Before that, he was motorsport racing manager, and he's also managed Pirelli's rallying activities in the past. He's also pretty handy behind the wheel himself, competing in karting in his youth, and in his early days with Pirelli working as a test driver. And today, he puts his driving skills to great use as a volunteer ambulance driver. What he doesn't know about f one tyres isn't worth knowing so it's over to Gary for his conversation with Mario Isola. Mario it's good to see you long time since uh, we've met up but how's life? Oh good happy with this uh, new Formula One uh, in 2022 I believe we had uh, fantastic races and uh, my life is going well, <laughs> so I cannot complain. Are you still driving the ambulance? And, and does the ambulance use Pirelli tires? That's a, that's a question. Of course, of course. Uh, no, I have to be honest that Pirelli always helped me with uh, providing tires for our ambulances. So I, again, it's, it's good to have this uh, support because clearly associations are always struggling with money. And uh, yeah, I'm still driving ambulances, uh, mainly during the night. Um, now the COVID situation is much better. So the situation in Milan is uh, back to normality. That doesn't mean that uh, we sleep during the night, but we have different missions, <laughs> different situations like it was in the times before the pandemic. So getting on the Formula One, Mario, um, this year, you know, with the change to 18 inch rims, it's been a a massive change to visually to the cars, but technically it's also very, very difficult to achieve it. Um, 
Based on 2022 so far, have you achieved the objectives of the 18-inch rims? Uh, yes and no. Yes, because as you said, it's a big change and uh, um, we had to design a completely new product uh, with different characteristics, not just different sides, but different characteristics to, um, to have more action on track, more close racing and uh, a better spectacles for, for people. Now, um, we have the new cars. Last year, we had to test our new tires uh, with mule cars with some big differences compared to the current cars. And uh, we realized that uh, we have uh, room for improvement in the product. So we are working for the next year product in order to um, improve it. Uh, I don't want to say we didn't achieve the targets because I believe we had uh, fantastic uh, races at the beginning of the season with a lot of overtakes and uh, action. But we know that it can be even better. So the, the reason why uh, we want to continue developing uh, the product and uh, to fine tune something that we have seen uh, in the first part of the season, it's really important for 2023. So your, your development's going to go 2023. Have you had a big learning curve because of the uh, the smaller sidewall, the reduced height of the sidewall? From our side, uh, we already saw some uh, modification that we want to, to make to the construction and fine-tuning to the compounds. The learning curve is mainly for the teams because clearly, as I said, it's not just a new product, but uh, the characteristics of, uh, of these tires are different. Uh, and so we have seen teams uh, focusing a lot in uh, learning how to use the, 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 the tires. Uh, that, that's a normal process uh, uh, when you have such big difference compared to previous year. Don't forget that we were coming from three years where the product was more or less the same. And that means that uh, teams had a clear idea on uh, the product they were using. Now everything is, is really different and the small sidewall is, uh, is changing even more the characteristics of that. The, uh, the downforce in these cars is probably pretty similar to last year, if not a little bit higher, but the weight of the car has gone up again, 800 kilograms roughly, plus the fuel load, so 900 almost at the start of a race. That must be uh, another problem for the tyres. Yeah, weight is an issue. Uh, we have also a different weight distribution, slightly different compared to last year. Uh, what I can say is that we had simulations coming from the teams that we are taking into account this uh, increase of weight as well as the estimated loads. And so we were, we were working a lot on the um, virtual model on the car, on the tire, sorry, uh, in order to understand the, the or to estimate the performance of the tires, the level of degradation mm -hmm. and possible issues. Thanks to this uh, data exchange uh, mm -hmm. with the teams, because as I said, we were using mule cars with uh, different characteristics. So uh, weight uh, is an issue, but I believe it's difficult to go down with weight. If we want to keep the same characteristics of the cars, uh, so the hybrid power unit, uh, additional uh, uh, devices for safety and also the bigger wheels are are heavier because the, if we talk about the rim the difference in weight on one set of uh, tire is probably 10 kilos or more so this is difficult to it's difficult to go down with weight in that in that condition 
And obviously the, the 2022 cars are, are ground effect cars and, and by that it, it means that the the ride height control is much, much more critical to get the downforce out of the underfloor. So the cars are running quite a lot stiffer. Um, again, does that give the tyre a, a much harder time? Yes, uh, that uh, um, with, with a smaller sidewall that's probably easier to control because the deflection of the sidewall is much less uh, and, and clearly they can control the right height much better. We have seen uh, that uh, some teams are also working a lot around the pressure in order to control this deflection. Uh, but the ground effect and the, the way in which this new aero package is working is affecting the tire in a different way compared to last year. On high speed, we, we see loads that are much higher compared to last year. And in low speed, uh, in general, we have uh, understeer or the general comment is towards understeer because we designed a rear tire that is quite strong uh, in order to optimize uh, or maximize the traction. But in that case, in low speed, when the when the, the aero package is working in a different way or is providing less downforce, the rear tire is pushing the front tire and therefore the balance is toward the understeer. This as a general comment, then obviously it depends on the circuit layout and, and conditions. You, you mentioned the tire pressures there. Um, the, the hope for 2022 was that the tire pressures could be a bit lower because they, they seem to escalate over the last few years just to protect the tires, the, the strength of the sidewall of the tire. Have you been able to achieve that? It seems that they're still quite high. They are still quite high because the performance of the car is still uh, quite good. Uh, when uh, they started to design the cars, the 2022 cars, they were estimating a delta lap time compared to last year of uh, three, four seconds per lap. While we know that the cars are very close, the current cars are very close to last year cars. That means that uh, the level of uh, uh, the forces acting on the tires are still quite high and we have to react with the pressure. If you look at the uh, comparison in terms of pressure between uh, using the mule cars, so with the uh, downforce characteristics more in line with last year cars, we were able to go down by two or three PSI or even more. But the point is that now the cars are quicker and uh, uh, the the way in which the downforce is uh, uh, is acting on the tires is uh, is different as I explained before, and that means that we have to react with uh, with the pressure. What we are doing for 2023, for example, is to design tires with a different construction, with a higher level of integrity, in order to go down with the pressure. The point is that uh, all the teams continue to develop the car, and so probably this. Uh, um, additional uh, uh, integrity that we can provide to the tire is compensated by the additional development on, on the car. So you, you cannot see that uh, in terms of uh, pressure decrease. So in reality, you're always playing catch up with the teams. Exactly. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the point. And uh, unfortunately, we are obliged to, um, to freeze the construction uh, end of the previous year and to use the same tire for one year without any modification and the only tool that we have is to increase the pressure yeah these 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 tires again part of the design was um to sort of make them less temperature sensitive but we still see the drivers having to really manage the outlaps for qualifying and if you don't do that very well the end of the lap usually the tires are overheating um how do you go about 
remedying that problem because obviously it means that the cars in the, the last section of the lap, they look as though they're crawling around just trying to get a position and also trying to cool the tyres. I believe that we have uh, to, to, to separate what is overheating with thermal degradation because we have seen that in some cases what uh, is called overheating is in reality uh, proper thermal degradation and we need the thermal degradation in order to have three different compounds at each event with different uh, uh, not only delta lap time but also level of degradation to generate the crossover that is necessary to increase the, no the possible number of strategies. Uh, um, we designed these new compounds uh, with uh, one target in mind that was uh, the grip recovery after a cool down lap for example. Miami was a very good example of that because in qualifying with a soft tire drivers have been able to uh, push cool push again and the second push lap uh, sometimes was even better than the first one so the grip recovery is there uh, it depends on the characteristics of the track uh, we have different uh, tarmac uh, with different macro and micro roughness that is uh, affecting the tire behavior in a different way the same for the layout if we talk about Barcelona Barcelona is a circuit that is very well known uh, for uh, um, stressing the tire especially the front left in the first part of the lap and uh, uh, you need uh, a lot of traction in sector three so you overstress the rear tire in sector three with a very high temperature that is a matter of uh, deciding how you want to balance the car and which is the axle you want to protect so it is a challenge for the engineers we still have some uh, degradation coming from uh, a thermal effect but uh, it is uh, again it is necessary to generate uh, different strategies so we we can work around that uh, that is what we are doing for example for next year there is a plan to reduce even more the the blanket temperature from 70 to 50 degrees that means we have to design compounds with a wider working range, not only on the high side of the temperature, but also on the low side to cover any warm-up issue. It was the same this year because from 100 degrees uh, front blanket temperature, we went down to 70, it's a big change, and you need to design a compound with this characteristic. So wider, not only on the side of the overheating, but also on the low side in order to avoid warm-up issues. Yeah, so uh, again, taking away from the, the one lap for qualifying and going into the race, um, you know, because the cars go into park for me, obviously the, the teams can't do any setup changes other than a little bit of an adjustment on the front wing and some electronic setup for power delivery. But during the race, there seems to be this period where you either have um, a bit of overheating, you have a bit of degradation, or if you can run pretty happily without that happening, then the wear becomes a problem. Do you see a reason to sort of have more rubber on the tire so the wear is not a problem? Would that contain the heat or would that increase the heat? Um, I believe that uh, one, uh, one action or one improvement we are planning for next year is to um, work on the construction in order to optimize the uh, wear profile. That's really important because... Uh, uh, we are collecting useful data now with the new cars in order to understand uh, uh, better the wear profile. Obviously, the optimization of the wear profile is uh, very, very important uh, uh, 
to also to reduce this effect, uh, to better distribute the temperature and the pressure under the footprint. Uh, another point is about uh, the, the compounds for sure, but uh, um, yeah, we still have some, uh, for sure, we still have some overheating that is generating some time from uh, sliding or micro sliding uh, that is affecting the temperature on the surface. To avoid completely that is probably impossible, but we know that there is a, a room of improvement for that. During the race, uh, for sure, you have, you have to manage the package. You have to manage the, uh, the, the, the power coming from the, the power unit. You have to manage the, the, the brakes and you have to manage the tires as well. Another important element uh, this year, I believe, is that uh, for the teams it's a lot more difficult to control uh, the rim heating or rim cooling, depending on what uh, they need, uh, because of the new rules, uh, because of the standard rim. Uh, and that was an effect uh, that in the past was really important to uh, achieve uh, a good performance of the tire. So mm, part of this uh, improvement in terms of uh, construction and compound that we have on the 18 inches tire is uh, uh, we have an offset due to the fact that they, uh, they are a, in a more difficult situation in controlling the rim heating or rim cooling. So the, the, uh, the thing about the rim cooling is that um, I mean that's the same for everybody isn't it in reality the rim is the rim is the same for everybody now so it's about uh, saving money by not having to have you know making special rims just to just to help the tire yeah it's it's, it's the same for everybody and uh, and clearly they are also all the teams are learning on how to use this new package uh, and and also the heat that is coming from the brake uh, um, and it's part of the learning curve we, we were talking about a few minutes ago You're listening to The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. You've got five compounds available five compounds that you make C1 to C5, but you, you bring only three to the race meeting, um, to any race meeting, whatever choose, choice you make. Would it be um, better to bring a, a sort of a wider range of compound um, or use three compounds during the race? Because normally now, whenever you've, you go from, let's say, the soft tire to the medium tire or vice versa in the race, after two or three laps, the, the difference just seems to, you know, disappear into the, to the undergrowth as such. You don't really see it. You might get a, an advantage for a couple of laps, but that's about it. Um, do you see any reason to widen that spread of compounds that you have at each race meeting? That, that's a very difficult question because uh, you, you can consider many situations like uh, giving the freedom to the teams to use any of the five compounds. Uh, we can increase the number of compounds that we homologate for a season. We can try to jump one level, uh, like uh, what we did in Melbourne, in order to have a, a wider gap between uh, compounds. Uh, in any of these cases, you can find uh, positive uh, and, and, and negative aspects. Uh, uh, 
this year they have decided to remove the rule that obliged the first 10 cars to start on the uh, on the compound used for Q2, used in Q2. And uh, we have seen some differences uh, in the first races, but now more or less everybody is converging to the same uh, decision. That's quite normal now. Engineers and teams have very powerful tools and software to predict strategies, to generate strategies. And uh, other than this uh, learning curve at, at the beginning of the season, then everybody is going to converge to the same solution. So we can give them the freedom to choose any of the compound. But in the past, we, we were running some simulations and we discovered, for example, that this option could uh, uh, make the difference between top teams and teams from, from the lower side on the grid even bigger because uh, the small teams are obliged to use softer compounds uh, for qualifying, but then they were penalized uh, for the race. If you keep the rule, they have to use the same compound at the start of the race. If you remove the rule, it means that all the teams are just using the softest compound for for the race. So it's difficult to make a rule that is for everybody and is generating real differences. Uh, unless you don't make a rule that is different for, for the top teams and the others, but I believe it's not fair. Uh, clearly having the same rule for everybody is not uh, generating a, a differentiation across the cars. Yeah, making a rule different for, for the top teams or the second half of the grid would not be, not be well uh, accepted. But um, if you had if you had a slightly different, slightly bigger gap between the compounds as far as performance was concerned, and then the teams had to use all three compounds for a minimum, let's say, of you know two laps or five laps, um, do you think that would bring in different strategies? We we did uh, we did an investigation a couple of years ago, and uh, we have asked the question to the teams, and we collected separate feedback from all the teams. Uh, and uh, it was quite curious that uh, we realized that uh, if you impose to use all the three compounds at one event, uh, more or less they come uh, with uh, a very similar strategy. So we made simulation based on real data from uh, past races uh, collected during FP2. And we asked them, uh, if you have this situation and you are obliged to use all the three compounds, which is your ideal strategy? And we found that across the 10 teams, uh, most of them were choosing the same strategy because it is the quickest. So they want to use it. And so, um, how can I say, giving more constraints is not, uh, uh, it doesn't mean that uh, we have uh, uh, more differences across the teams uh, or yeah, different strategies or a different approach. It's, it's difficult because at the end of the day, uh, they, are the, they are here to compete and to find the best uh, solution, uh, irrespective if they have one compound, two compounds, five compounds. But by using the, the same rims in all the cars now, there's a standard tire pressure sensor on there. Um, and sort of to control that a little bit better and make sure the pressures are okay for you, because we often hear about tires getting too high in pressure or from the safety car, for example, a bit too low in pressure. Um, do you think there's any any reason to have a, a sort of active pressure system where there's a, you know, a pressurized canister built into the rim that uh, allows the tire pressure sensor to be 
to open that canister and let air into the rim at a safety car or you know reduce the pressure when it gets too high? Uh, that's for sure a possibility. Um, that that that's uh, also I mean a good idea. Um, we we discussed that in the in the past. It seems that. Uh, the level of accuracy that is required to a Formula One tire and the pressure in the Formula One tire is still far from uh, what you can find on the market to 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 have this kind of uh, device able to control pressure. Uh, but I cannot exclude that in in the future. That's a possibility. So if the, if it was a more stable pressure in the tire, would that change your design philosophy? For- philosophy for the tire you wouldn't have to give it such a wide working window uh that's possible because clearly you can optimize the footprint at a certain pressure and keep the pressure consistent for uh from from the the pit exit to to the end of the run so yeah for sure it is an uh, help in uh, in controlling the how the tire operate on the on the track yeah, so it might be a, a thing for the future, really. Develop a sensor, and then you could uh, you could probably do that. Yeah, you know, we use Formula One to develop technology, and any uh, kind of technology that is also relevant for uh, uh, road cars is it's really important. We have many examples of uh, these technology transfer from uh, racing to uh, our road tires, and how we control the the temperature, the pressure, the footprint, the uh, distribution of that is really important also to generate performance on uh, on road cars and performance there can can be uh, better braking or better uh, uh, handling or, or whatever is uh, useful for road tires. Yeah, you, you got involved in, uh, Pirelli got involved in, in Formula 1 2011 I think it was. So if, if we were to take one of your tires from 2011 and, and cut it in two across the tread and one of the current tires and cut it in two would we see much difference in there you're talking about technology has it moved on as far as the tire design is concerned uh, for sure we we can find uh, the um, the materials that we use that are quite different uh, during the year we had developed new materials uh, we had developed new geometries in some specific areas for example the bead the belts um, the profile Clearly, the profile this year is completely different. But also, uh, if you if you look at the evolution of the tires during the year, um, I believe that uh, you can clearly see the difference between a tire that uh, that was in used in 2011 and a tire that uh, we used in let's say 2021 because it was still 13 inches tire. You know, talking about tires, and, and obviously the world today is all about sustainability, but currently. You know, each uh, each race meeting you use something like well over a thousand tires. Um, the teams use. What happens to them afterwards? Where do they go to? We we collect all the tires uh, back and uh, we recycle them, uh, generating energy in uh, cement factories. Uh, but at the moment, we are also investigating better system and more modern system to recycle tires because the target is to. Uh, to get uh, new raw materials uh, from uh, the used tires. And we currently have a project running on that. I believe that uh, uh, we are at a, at, a, at a good point with that. It's not very easy, but uh, in probably one year time, we will be in a position to, to use that. 
you were talking about sustainability. Sustainability is uh, from uh, raw material to end of life of the tires. And uh, uh, in, in Pirelli, we, we are quite committed to sustainability from the usage of uh, uh, energy that is coming from uh, renewable sources to the reduction in usage of water, um, raw materials that are coming from sustainable uh, uh, sources again so we have uh, a lot going on also in terms of logistics uh, and we are talking to formula one to have uh, new ideas to reduce the number of tires we are using to to events uh, one of those ideas uh, has been recently uh, been communicated uh, if you remember in the last formula one commission there was a, a project to uh, reduced by two sets per car, uh, and it's, it is going to be tested in 2023 with the, with the same, uh, um, how can I say, the idea is not uh, to reduce the tires, but also to reduce the show or the opportunity to have different strategies. So we want to keep the same approach, the same quality of the show, but reducing the tire. And that's an idea that uh, we are going to test next year. What else would you do for sustainability? I mean, obviously, you could make tyres that would last much longer or that would have the ability to do a full race without any problem. Um, would that be a, a, the right idea? Does does the pit stops, the strategy, mean that that would ruin racing? Or do you think we should... Uh, that, that, that That's a more a decision that we need to take together with all the stakeholders because clearly that is a dif completely different approach to Formula 1. We can make a tyre that is lasting for the race, for the entire race. We are, we, we are making tyres that are lasting for the... Look at Albon a few races ago. He was able to run uh, all the race with one set of tyre. So it's not a matter of not having the technology to do that, but it's more... That at the moment, Formula One want to have these uh, um, pit stops uh, as a part of the show. So um, this period, Pirelli being involved in Formula One, you're probably about to win your 12th World Championship, I think, in a, in a row. Um, do you see any anything that would come from tyre competition from another manufacturer getting involved and having a, a battle again like we had with the Bridgestone and Michelin um, a few years ago? I, I don't think that's uh, a possibility for the future because in terms of cost, uh, clearly it has an impact that is huge if you have to develop during the, the season uh, new tires, uh, testing new tires. We know how expensive are Formula 1 now and with the introduction of the budget cap is probably a situation that is not going to happen. It's a different challenge. In the past, I was involved in competition, not in Formula One, in GT racing. And obviously, it's a completely different approach where uh, you, you, you target uh, your development on performance, performance, performance. That's the only target. Now we have a technical challenge that is uh, different. We have to supply the same product to everybody, the same service to everybody. Um, um, a product that is uh, with certain characteristics that are required and agreed with all the stakeholders. So it's still a technical challenge, but it's different compared to competition. Well, thank you very much for your time, and I'll let you get back to your uh, to your amb ambulance. And good luck for that 12th World Championship. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you.
If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd love for you to send us a question. And if you're lucky, we might just answer it on a future episode. Just record a voice note on your phone and send it to podcasts at the race. That's podcasts at the-race.com. And don't forget to tell us who you are. For our first episode, we ask the Race Members Club members to submit their questions. And this is the one we chose. It's from Mark Bildner. He says, We tend to attribute porpoising problems to aerodynamics, but I can't help but notice that the cars with such opposite aero philosophies all experience it. Is it possible that oscillations are inevitable no matter what the package, and that success really depends upon how the suspension and mass distribution work together to stifle it? If audio engineers can make noise-cancelling headphones, and architects could install devices to prevent skyscrapers from oscillating, then surely there must be mechanical options even within the limits of the current rules. So, Gary, this is a great question considering your initial choice of topic. Yes, it is. It's obviously the, the buzzword of, uh, of 2022, this, uh, this porpoising. And I think uh, first thing is I'm going to look at what porpoising really is, I suppose, is the best way to put it. Um, the, the fact that you've got a, an aerodynamic surface on the bottom of the car that's reacting to the track surface um, and giving you the downforce. It's like, a, it's like a big venturi. It's not so much a wing surface, it's a venturi. And you're accelerating air through underneath the car. The diffuser is expanding that air, means that at the lowest point of the underfloor, the airflow has to travel very fast. Now, what you want to do is make sure that you can get as much out of that diffuser as you can when the car is higher. So basically, low speed, medium speed corners, as the car speeds up, the car gets closer and closer to the ground. But the majority of corners in F1 are, you know, medium speed, let's say. They're all, let's say, 200 kilometres an hour, 200 and a window of between 180 to 240 kilometres or something. There's a big window of corners there. So you want the maximum downforce you can get at that point in time. And if you do get that to work like that, then you will get some problem as the car gets closer to the ground because the, the airspeed just cannot get through that venturi fast enough. So as the car gets closer to the ground, some part of the diffuser will struggle to have um, flow attachment or some part of the underflow will struggle to get flow attachment. Now, the big thing is to make sure that when you get that separation problem, it's small. It can get bigger, but it starts off small because the car is increasing in speed and the downforce that the car is creating um, is at the square of the speed. So twice the speed, you have four times the downforce, for example. So at the end of the day, if your stall is too big to begin with, that means the downforce is re- has reduced. So you suddenly get to a point of speed, let's say at 260, 280 kilometers, and you get a stall. As long as that small stall is a small enough percentage, the car will still keep on going towards the ground. It'll just slow down. It won't go to the, towards the ground as fast. And if that separation then grows, that's, that's the same thing. The car will still in, be going towards the ground, but not as fast. Whereas if you get too big a stall, the car will release and come up again. And when it comes up, then that stall will go away, it'll reattach, and the car will go down again. Then it will stall, and it will come back up again. So that's porpoising. That's whenever you've got too big a stall. What you want to do is control the size of that stall, which which actually helps you drag-wise. Control the size of that stall, and make sure the car never has less downforce relative to the, the speed increase. And I think that's what... Red Bull are probably very, very good at. When I look at their underfloor, the pictures I've seen, that I think they're very good at managing that. 
They've, they've set up areas where the stall can happen, but it will happen uh, at a small percentage. Um, and I think Mercedes are very bad at that, and they just have too big a stall, so the car bounces. Now then you go into the suspension, and can you control it with the suspension? Well, any load change in the suspension will obviously um, make the car react. The car is sitting on springs. So if you make the car lighter aerodynamically or anything, the car will sit higher. If you make it heavier, uh, more load on it, the car will go down. So suspension-wise, it doesn't know about it. It doesn't know what's going on. Um, it, it just reacts to a given force on top of it. The car either goes to the ground or it rises up, one of the two. Car speeds up, it goes near the ground. Car slows down, it comes up. So the, the big thing is you've got to stop the car from bouncing. Um, bumps set off the porpoison. You know, any car that you saw, you can see the Ferrari over a bump, it still bounces, but it, rea- it recovers quite quickly. The Red Bull is very good at it. But if you get the car going over bumps, it has a, an uncontrolled suspension movement or a, a, a bad suspension movement, then you get the stall setting up because the car gets close to the ground, you get the stall setting up at a lower speed. And then the car reacts much, much more. It, it bounces up much, much more because you've lost downforce because the car has bounced itself into the ground. You've lost downforce because of that. So you want to just... Ha- the suspension can control the, the, the rate of change of the forces. Um, but if you had a, a car that was on a perfectly flat glass plate track, you should be able to drive it along and basically, it would just get closer and closer to the ground. And if you've got a, con- a, a controlled stall, you'd never see the car moving. If you put bumps into that, then you will see the car moving because the bumps set off the porpoise. And so suspension-wise, I believe you can you can reduce the porpoising because you can manage and control the, how the car goes over the bumps. But you cannot change the fact that the diffuser stall is bigger than the rate of change of downforce relative to the car speed increasing. Well, a great answer there from Gary, and thanks very much for that question, Mark Bildner. Remember, if you want to be like Mark and have your burning technical question answered on the Race F1 Tech Show, just send a voice note of your question to podcasts at therace.com. It can be on anything past, present, and future. We're ready for the challenge. Well, thanks very much for your time, Gary, and for your interview of Mario. Very much looking forward to hearing more from you on these tech podcasts, and I imagine you're pretty excited about getting the chance to share your insight with uh, with F1 fans, given that's always been a passion of yours. Yeah, it's great to do it because, you know, right, I'm no, I'm no brain surgeon by any means, but at the end of the day, I've been involved with it for a long time. So by being on the inside and trying to find solutions to these problems, I probably have a, a clue what's going on here and there, and it's nice to bring that to the to the viewing public because the viewing public are what Formula One's about. You know, it's the same old deal. It's um, it's nice to get people to understand a little bit more of what's going on. I reckon you'd have made a success of brain surgery if you'd uh, turned your turned your mind to it. You're one of those people who seems to get on top of things quite well. So looking forward to talking to you over the coming weeks. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.